My name is Sebastian Lorito. I'm a member of the Whitehead Institute and an assistant professor of biology at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. I'm going to tell you about the genetic approaches that we're using in our lab to study Toxoplasma gondii. In my previous lecture, I introduced the life cycle of Toxoplasma and gave some of the highlights of what we know about how these organisms fulfill this really remarkable feat of infecting human cells, replicating within them, and coming back out. But I also mentioned that there's very little that we actually know about them because they're very different from the canonical models of molecular biology. And so I'd like to tell you about what we're doing to really get a broad view of the genetic makeup of these organisms and understand what we don't know about them. So before I get going, I can give you an example of why we believe that Toxoplasma's genome is largely cryptic or why we really understand so little. If we take the genes of Toxoplasma, and we can do this exercise for any of the other apicomplexins, we can categorize genes by whether they are conserved in all of the eukaryotes or only in the most closely related ones or only in apicomplexins. And we can do this to generate sort of bins of genes that are of increasing depth of conservation. And if we do this and we look at the composition of these bins, we can see that the more deeply conserved a gene is, for instance, in this eukaryotic category, the better annotated it is. In other words, fewer of those genes are categorized as hypothetical proteins, which means that most of those genes have cognate uh, homologs or orthologs in other organisms. But the closer we get to apicomplexin-specific features or to genes that are exclusively found within Toxoplasma, the less we know about them. So that of the 1,200 or so genes that are only found within Toxoplasma and have no correlates outside of the species, nearly 90% of them are categorized as hypothetical. And that is evidence for how little we really know about even the genes that we really care about such as the ones that are conserved through, throughout the apicomplexin phylum. And so we need better tools to dissect them and to understand what these genes are doing. And so when I started my lab at the Whitehead Institute, I was captivated by the possibility of adopting the latest genetic engineering strategies which were being implemented in mammalian biology. And what I'm talking about is CRISPR-Cas9 which is this remarkable system that has really taken over genetics because of its remarkable efficiency and portability. In a single plasmid illustrated here, we can code for the guide RNA, which instructs the nuclease coded for in the same plasmid, where to bind, where to go within the genome of choice, and based on 20 nucleotides of homology, to the site that we want cut, we can really tell this nuclease where to go, where to cut, and where to generate a double-stranded break. And this is important because generating that local double-stranded break is key 
to efficiently disrupting a given gene or modifying that particular site within the genome of an organism. And this worked remarkably well in Toxoplasma. So what had taken about six months when I was in graduate school, now we could do within a matter of days by transfecting this one plasmid that contained the nuclease and the address for where, where we wanted to disrupt. And what you see here is the disruption of a surface antigen called SAG1. SAG1 is not essential within the culture conditions that we typically keep the parasites under, and we have an antibody against it, which is why we targeted it. And what you can see is that in the absence of any selection, just by introducing through transfection this one plasmid, we could get vacuoles of parasites that lacked SAG1 staining. And in fact, nearly 20% of the vacuoles in the resulting population were disrupted for this surface antigen. This is a remarkable efficiency in the absence of any selection and really made us very, very eager to try it in different settings. One thing I will note is that this rate of disruption depends on the fact that Toxoplasma fixes its genome through non-homologous end joining. That means that it can take two broken ends of DNA and just splice them together through this method that generates a small changes that disrupt the coding of different genes. And we knew that this was the case because if we remove a protein that's necessary for the process of non-homologous end joining, the Q80 protein, the rates of SAG1 disruption plummet. And this is the case because those parasites are unable to repair their genomes and die. This, in fact, ends up being useful in other settings where we want the genome to be fixed only in the presence of a repair template so that we can dictate what changes should be made to the genomic sequence. That's what I'm illustrating here. So the locus that we targeted in this case was the end of the coding sequence of one of these calcium-dependent protein kinases that I talked about in my previous presentation, a, the protein CDPK3. And we di directed the cut right at the very end of the coding sequence where we could introduce an epitope tag by, in addition to the CRISPR system, including a repair template. This was a synthetic repair template that had 40 base pairs of homology on either end that were homologous to the cut site and could be, through the homologous recombination machinery, incorporated into that genomic sequence and include in tandem to the protein sequence of CDPK3 an epitope tag that allows us to visualize it with this particular antibody. And what we observed was that in contrast to what we had seen for gene disruption, in the absence of non-homologous end joining, we actually had an increased rate of homologous recombination-mediated repair and of the incorporation of the desired rearrangement. So these are very powerful tools to study the genomes of AP-complex in organisms like Toxoplasma gondii. And so we thought 
Well, we can apply this to particular dedicated settings. Why don't we try to apply it to the entire genome? There are about 8,000 protein coding genes in Toxoplasma gondii, and scientists had only really studied a handful of them. There had been some genome-wide approaches previously based on genetic crosses, classical genetic crosses, but these require as you'll know from my previous lecture, the definitive host, which is the cat, which is difficult to use, and they require probing of pre-existing variation within two parental uh, strains that are crossed, and then those changes or the source of that variation is disambiguated based on classical genetics. So that's difficult to implement and has several restrictions in terms of understanding what the entire genome is doing. And as I mentioned, we had targeted approaches that allowed us to, in a very dedicated fashion, manipulate one gene at a time, but these were difficult to implement at scale, and they are very gene-dependent. So some genes are amenable to some strategies, but not others, and so they're very difficult uh, technologies to implement in a genome-wide approach. And I should also note that apicomplexins lack RNAi, which had been used previously in many organisms to perform genome-wide screens, um, but in apicomplexins they just can't be implemented because the machinery that is required by them is simply not there. So we needed to boost the efficiency of CRISPR-Cas9, and we did this by expressing Cas9 within parasites. And once we had strains that stably expressed Cas9, we could introduce the instructions for which a particular a gene to disrupt in a single plasmid that also had a selectable drug resistance marker, shown here as the DHFR, a pyrimethamine resistance cassette. And when we selected for the stable integration of those instructions into a population, now the rates of gene disruption skyrocketed to nearly the entire population. We estimate that 97% of the parasites that stably incorporate this plasmid disrupt the gene that is targeted by the guide RNA encoded in it. And so these are remarkable rates of gene disruption that are now efficient enough to implement at scale against the entire genome. So the strategy is illustrated here. It's a pooled genetic screen. We can synthesize using a highly parallel a oligosynthesis approaches, 10 different guide RNAs against each one of the 8,000 genes in the Toxoplasma genome. That's 80,000 different sequences or so that can be cloned all as one into an array of vectors that target each one of those genes. And we can put those in through transfection into parasites that carried Cas9. And by doing that, we generate a really diverse population of mutants where different genes have been disrupted and the identity of the disrupted gene within each one of those organisms can be 
un can be encoded by reading out the sequence of the guide RNA. Because that guide RNA gives us the instructions for which gene is disrupted. And so this diverse population can be placed in a culture with human fibroblasts, and we can allow the parasites to grow as they would normally in culture by invading those human fibroblasts, replicating within them, egressing over several cycles, in fact, three different uh, cycles in our initial experiments. And what will happen is that when an essential gene or really important gene is disrupted, those guides will be lost from the population. And the reason they'll be lost is that they'll be outcompeted by guides against genes that are, that are dispensable within these given conditions. And so what you'll have at the end is the ability to amplify the guide RNAs from these resulting populations and compare them to the guide RNAs in the initial population in order to estimate which genes are fitness conferring, which genes are important for the fitness of these parasites under the tested conditions. And this can help us through a averaging the loss of all 10 guide RNAs against each gene, this can help us identify those genes that are fitness conferring. So to test this, we used something that we've known since the 1970s through the work of Elmer Pfefferkorn, which is the ability of parasites to incorporate from the environment a different pyrimidines. And these parasites utilize this so-called salvage pathway, which is shown here, to incorporate uh, cytidine derivatives from the host cell, but we can trick them and introduce fluorinated versions of these, which end up being toxic when the parasites incorporate them into their DUMB pools. In the absence of that salvage pathway, and in fact, in the absence of a particular gene called UPRT within that salvage pathway, parasites stop importing those toxic compounds and rely exclusively on the de novo synthesis uh, pathways that they have within them. And so they don't depend on import, and they're now resistant to compounds like FUDR. And so the hypothesis was that if we have this diverse population of parasites and we place them under the pressure of FUDR selection, that guides against UPRT are going to be selected for because they disrupt the import pathway and make the parasites resistant to these compounds. And that is, in fact, what we found, both at the guide RNA level as shown there by the increase in abundance of those guides against UPRT in the presence of FUDR. And then when we summarize those scores at the gene level, we saw UPRT distinct from all of the other genes in the toxoplasma genome um, as solely responsible for resistance against FUDR. This was remarkable because in the course of a single experiment, we could identified genes involved in drug resistance, uh, which typically would have taken a convoluted crosses or a really sophisticated 
genetic approaches to identify. In the course of this experiment, we also were collecting the data for identifying which genes are fitness conferring. And so these are plotted here. Each one of these uh, bars is one of the 14 chromosomes of Toxoplasma gondii, and the colored lines are individual genes, those 8,000 genes that I mentioned. And what we have here is a heat map for the genetic contributions to parasite fitness by each one of these parasite genes. And if we zoom in to different regions, we can, for instance, see that the pentothenate kinase is particularly important during these growth conditions, whereas this ubiquitin ligase is particularly dispensable. And so you can already see how these approaches are giving us remarkable information about the genetic makeup of Toxoplasma gondii and really a roadmap for what the most important genes within this genome are. And I'd like to emphasize that this is, of course, under the growth conditions tested. You can imagine that remaking uh, these, uh, these pools of parasites and retesting them in animals would give a different set of uh, fitness-conferring genes as the parasites are challenged by uh, the immune system or, with, or challenged by other conditions that they encounter under those settings. If we take a look at the ranking of these genes and correlate that to 40 genes that had been previously studied and shown to be dispensable and 40 genes that had been previously studied and shown to be fitness-conferring, we see that our phenotype scores on the y-axis give us a very nice sorting of those two populations, a, showing us that our data is well correlated by the literature. And in fact, the one outlier, which was this RAB4 gene, we could later confirm was a misannotation of the literature. And it was, in fact, dispensable where it had been reported to be essential. There are other broad metrics of, of genetic importance, such as expression and conservation and gene ontology, that we can look at to see whether they correlate with the fitness scores that we calculated. And in fact, what we see is that, for instance, categories such as the ribosomal proteins, which are important, in fact, essential in every eukaryotic cell, are collected at very low phenotype scores, as shown in the red line, indicating that they are, in fact, fitness-conferring within the screen. And yet, other categories that are likely highly redundant, um, because they are large families of surface proteins, or not expressed within the stage that we're assaying at all, are collected late in the blue and green lines, uh, indicative of their dispensability. So, broad measures, broad genomic trends seem to correlate well with the fitness course that we are identifying. So, let's go back to this question that I had posed at the beginning, which is, can we identify within these categories of apicomplexin or toxospecific genes those genes that are most important and which we might have not pursued because of their lack of correlation with known 
systems of molecular biology. If we take a look at each one of these categories, we see that with an increased depth of conservation, there's an increased proportion of each one of those categories that is comprised by fitness-conferring genes. And in fact, within the eukaryotic category, nearly 70% of the genes are fitness-conferring and expected to be quite important. This highlights a particularly interesting category right here in the belly of the apicomplexin set, which we termed the indispensable conserved apicomplexin proteins, or ICAPs, just for short, which were a set of proteins that we might have not pursued previously, but which we now knew to be important for the completion of the toxoplasmolytic cycle. We used that trick uh, with CRISPR of trying to manipulate genes within parasites that lack non-homologous end joining, where we could integrate epitope tags, tags that we could recognize with known antibodies, um, within the coding sequence of 17 different ICAPs, and we localized them within the really defined structure of the toxoplasma cell. And what you see here is the diversity of patterns that resulted from this experiment. We found some genes that localized to the nucleolus. We saw others that were more generally distributed, and yet many others that were localized to the mitochondrion. I'd like to highlight a couple that were localized to these secretory organelles that I introduced in my previous lecture, the micronemes. And that's because micronemes are known to participate in motility and invasion, and we were particularly interested to know whether any of these ICAPs participated in these processes. We did a secondary screen and, in fact, identified one of them, ICAP-12, as important for invasion, most likely, and so we decided to take a closer look. And what you see here is Toxoplasma gondii, where ICAP-12 has been tagged endogenously with a fluorescent protein that allows us to visualize it. And you see it localized to the apical end of the protein, and during the invasion process, you see it localized to the moving junction, and then concentrate at the posterior of the parasite in a manner reminiscent to the localization of the ropetory proteins that form the tight junction. We took a closer look at its localization and, in fact, confirmed that it was localized to micronemes along with known micronemal markers. And topological predictions suggested that it had structural similarity to claudins, which are the proteins that hold our cells together. And this was particularly remarkable, not only because CLAMP, as we called it, was conserved throughout the apicomplexin radiation, in fact, one copy in each apicomplexin genome, but also because during invasion, that tight apposition of the plasma membrane of the host cell with the plasma membrane of the parasite resembles structurally the tight junctions that are maintained by claudins within our own cells. We performed some genetic tricks to try to shut down the expression of CLAMP 
in a regulated manner. And what you see here in green are parasites that are deficient in CLAMP, where we've tuned down its expression, and in red, parasites that still have it. And when they try to invade host cells, you see that the parasites that lack CLAMP try to invade, but are ultimately unable to do so, despite their several attempts. We can quantify this, of course, and see a really dramatic loss of invasion in parasites where we've downregulated CLAMP expression. And so we are fascinated by this protein because it provides one of the first proteins that is completely conserved throughout the phylum and participates exclusively in the invasion process. There are previously other proteins like actin and myosin, which are of course conserved, but those also participate within general motility. Clamp-deficient parasites, however, taught us that clamp is involved only in the invasion process and not in the motility process. And this is interesting because at a macro scale, invasion in toxoplasma looks very much like invasion in malaria, where parasites squeeze themselves slowly into erythrocytes, or in fact, invasion in cryptosporidium, where these tiny little parasites also squeeze themselves into the cells that, that they infect. So there is the possibility that through studying CLAMP, we can identify features of this invasion process that are in fact conserved throughout the entire phylum. And although we haven't tested it in the most distantly related culturable parasite, Cryptosporidium, we decided to take a look at Plasmodium, the causative agent of malaria. In collaboration with Jacqueline Niles's lab, and in fact, Suresh Ganesan in his lab, we performed another genetic trick that allowed us to tune the expression of CLAMP within these malarial parasites by a trick that required anhydrotetracycline in the media for the expression of CLAMP. So if we remove anhydrotetracycline, this has no effect on the parental strain, but when we tested the mutant, we could see that that removal of anhydrotetracycline, and in fact, the removal of CLAMP expression, crashed the populations shown here in yellow, and essentially obliterated the infection. This indicates that CLAMP is as important for malarial parasites as it is for toxoplasma, and gives us great hope that its study can tell us more about this fascinating process of apicomplexin invasion. And with that, I hope that over the last couple of courses, I've given you a sense of how we can utilize Toxoplasma gondii to investigate the central hallmarks of apicomplexin parasitism and understand the unique molecular biology of this important phylum. With that, I'd like to acknowledge my funding sources, the National Institutes of Health, the Whitehead Institute, and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and the members of my lab, in particular, Saima Siddick and Diego Huet, who led the efforts to uh, apply the genome-wide CRISPR approaches. 
Saima's work was also to investigate the function of CLAMP in the second part of this talk. Um, I have had a remarkable number of collaborators, too many to mention, but it's worth highlighting Tim Wang from our neighboring lab, the Sabatini lab, who helped us implement these genome scale approaches uh, in, in Toxoplasma. I mentioned Jacqueline Niles, our collaborator in malaria, and Vern Carruthers and Mei Hyun helped us with some of the genetic manipulations in Toxoplasma. And I'd like to thank you for your attention.